Good morning, church. Today's reading is going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. And the Word of God says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and still must have everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart for which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. From apart from him, who can eat of who can have enjoyment or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after win. The word of God for the people of God. So cinematic. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. If you got a Bible and in the event that you didn't catch Tony, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is a book in the Old Testament. And so we're looking at verses uh, 18 through 26. Uh, before I go any further, and as you open or load your Bible, uh, let me give you just a couple of quick updates. The first is, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you, grab lunch with you, or coffee. And so we would invite you to fill out a Connect card, uh, whether it's taking you out or simply praying for you. We'd love the opportunity. You could drop it at the Connect desk. Finally, if you do not have uh, a Bible, we, love, we would love to hook you up with one. And so you can take one with you. That's our gift to you or hook someone else up with a Bible. Uh, other than that, that's all I have for you this morning. Uh, last week, we looked at a big chunk of Scripture. We're not going to look at that much or give you a little bit of a break, but don't get used to it because we're going to continue to take big chunks of Scripture as we work our way through this book that is Ecclesiastes. And so uh, let me just dive right in. Well, over the last few weeks, as I get the privilege of, of hanging out with many of you, I've asked you the question, how are you doing? And uh, despite popular belief, the most, common uh, the most common response that I've received has not been, I'm doing fine. But rather, it has been, I'm busy. I'm really tired. And I'm no exception to this answer. As many of you have asked me how I'm doing, I often respond with something similar along the lines of, I'm just trying to survive the dream. It seems as though this semester, many are behind when it comes to work. Many are overwhelmed with work or assignments. And there simply isn't enough hours in the day to hammer it all out. The poet Christian Wyman says it this way, We all feel that there is somehow less time than there once was to satisfy the feverish need we have to fill every hour of every day 
with measurable tasks and accomplishments. And if we're honest, that's only part of the problem, right? Part of the problem is, man, there's so much to do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm capped. My capacity is done. Uh, I'm overwhelmed by all the things I have to do, wherever it is that you find yourself in. The other side of the problem is that there are frustrations when it comes to managing the work that you have or just the work itself. Work alone has its own set of issues, I don't know if you're familiar with the Vogues, but in their 1966 classic, they sing, and this, the name of it is called Five O'Clock World. They seem to relate really well to our weekly grind by singing, up every morning just to keep a job. I got to fight my way through the hustling mob. Sounds of the city pounding in my brain while another day goes down the drain. That's where Solomon finds himself today. And we'll review where we've been in a moment. But perhaps as I've quoted a few things and I've seen a couple of nods and mm-hmm, perhaps you find yourself in a similar season, in a similar situation. While at the same time, you might even find yourself asking, well, how do I reconcile the nature of my work with the purpose of my work? After all, just a couple of weeks ago, we were in a series on stewardship, and the last sermon was on work, and it was all about bringing glory to God wherever it is that we find ourselves in and what we find ourselves doing. And it's like, yeah, that's cool, and there are these frustrations, and I'm treading water with all these diving bricks, and I can't do it anymore. How do I reconcile the nature of my work and the purpose of my work? And the answer to that question really depends on your source of joy. You see, if your source of joy, and this is your main idea, if your source of joy is earthly wisdom, that is wisdom apart from God, then your work will always be disappointing and devastating. But if your source of joy is godly wisdom, wisdom that is bestowed on us from God, then our work will be a delight. That doesn't mean that it won't be hard and that there won't be challenges and that you won't be stressed. But at the very least, the source of your joy comes from godly wisdom. And you might even argue, well, what about CEOs and business owners and individuals who are very, very successful? It doesn't seem as though they find themselves disappointed. And even then, I would say it depends on who you ask. When you flip through the pages of history and you consider several CEOs over the past, when they have went bankrupt or have lost everything, CEOs have been known to commit the most brutal way of suicide when they lose everything. It may not be disappointing in the moment, but it will end in disappointment. And so with that being said, as we consider this passage, let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time beginning in verse 18. So let me pray. God, we thank you for the gift of this morning, the gift of your kindness, the gift of your compassion. Lord, I pray that these gifts would draw us toward you in worship and adoration. Further, God, we ask that you would provide us with wisdom and discernment for you by your Spirit to search our hearts and reveal anything that is keeping us from you. 
And finally, we ask God that your word would be sweeter than the taste of honey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. In this closing section of chapter 2, King Solomon begins by saying something kind of sad, and that's just the nature of this book. He opens by saying, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. We're going to take verse 18 and we're going to do two things with it. I'm going to provide you with an overview of where we've been and then we're going to take verse 18 and help uh, go the way that we're going this morning. In the event that you haven't been with us, Ecclesiastes is a series uh, that we just started a few weeks ago. Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book. You don't have to know a lot about the Bible uh, because it's more of King Solomon's personal memoirs. Additionally, the honesty and sorrow that that Solomon experiences are relatable to us today, making this book not simply one that is timeless, but timely. And so as we consider Ecclesiastes, King Solomon has been taking us on this journey to find the meaning of life. In the opening chapter, he famously writes, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is to say, there is nothing new under the sun in which we find ourselves in, and it's all going to pass away anyway. Vanity is this word that we've talked about. The the translation is hevel. That is, it is a breeze. It is a vapor. It is temporary. And so after arriving at this realization, like a really good emo, he goes on to apply his heart. He applies his heart to the meaning or to know the meaning of life. And as we looked at last week and we quoted the prophet Bain from Batman, admirable but mistaken. It's admirable because he's going to take the approach of discovering the meaning of life. He is mistaken because as he does so, he tries to do it apart from God. Only only to realize in all of his experiences that it is striving after wind and vanity. And you're going to see this little phrase over and over again as we work through Ecclesiastes, striving after wind. In other words, Solomon is trying to find the meaning of life, and when he thinks he has it, he feels like he's catching smoke. The minute he thinks he has it in his hands, it disappears. He's chasing the wind, as it were. Last week, we examined a series of tests via experiences that he, that he had. He tried accumulating wisdom and knowledge, and that left all vanity. He went for the, the way of leisure and possessions and then pleasure, all of which turned out to be vanity. And as a reminder, over and over again, Solomon uses this word wisdom. He's saying that he's applying his heart and that wisdom is still guiding him as he is walking and working his way through these experiences. And what we learned is that the word wisdom in those contexts is earthly wisdom not divine wisdom, not one that has been revealed to him from God's word. He's just going with what he thinks is best. He's applying earthly wisdom. And so we find ourselves in one of his final realizations. This isn't necessarily a test, but he finds himself reflecting on him. And this is all concerning 
work. And so here we go. He opens. <laughs> I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Here, Solomon is reflecting on everything that he's done, everything that he's built, everything that he's accomplished and conquered and possessed, only to realize that he hates it because he can't take any of it with it when he, when he dies. All of the work and toil and accomplishments, the getting up early, the staying up late, all of the promotions, all of the wisdom, all of the earthly wisdom he used was for nothing. Look at verse 19. He writes, And who knows whether he, the person who comes after him, will he be wise or a fool? Solomon arrives at two conclusions, and this is found in verses 18 to 21. The first conclusion is that all of the work, all of the rewards, all of the accomplishments, all of the promotions that Solomon obtained can't go with him. He can't take them with him when he dies. In fact, all of his labor will be left for someone else to possibly, and, I, and even in my notes I put that in I, italics, possibly enjoy. Who knows whether they will actually steward what he's done? Who knows whether they will actually enjoy the fruit of his labor? He goes on to write, what if they're a fool? I did all these things. I built all these parks and these gardens. I have the finest wines. I've expanded the kingdom. And when I die, I can't take any of this with me. And what if the one who comes after me is a fool with all of this? So again, the first conclusion that he comes to is, all of this work, I can't take it with me. And there are two ways in which we think about leaving our work or what we have worked for and we're leaving behind. The first way is we think about it in the context of inheritance or legacy or succession. And to be fair, these are noble things to look ahead to for our children and our children's children to make an impact on our community, to further see flourishing in our cities. But Solomon hits us with a dose of reality. What if those who inherit what we've worked for ruin it? Yesterday, uh, I went to go see Batman with, with my son, and, uh, and it was a really good movie. And I hope I'm not spoiling anything, but I, I, don't, I don't think I am. Anyway, we went to go see Batman, and there's this one scene where Bruce Wayne is like trying to figure out the past of his family, in particular his father, Thomas Wayne. Right? And so as he's like working through things that his dad did, he ends up discovering this program that his dad uh, wanted to start when he was running for mayor, and it was called the Renewal Program. And the Renewal Program uh, was going to be funded by the Wayne Foundation, and that the Waynes were going to donate $1 billion to this program so that people would have housing and clean water and kids would get food and all sorts of things for the community. In so doing, as he pledges this $1 billion, not, there, not long after, Thomas Wayne and his wife are murdered. And he, maybe you know the story of Batman. That doesn't matter. Anyway, Thomas Wayne ends up getting murdered. 
In the film, we end up learning later on that there was no oversight on that budget. So he had donated the billion dollars, and then there was no oversight over that program and budget. And so both mobsters and corrupt police officers went for that budget, and that's what they were using essentially to fund their crimes and corruption and so on and so forth. Right? That's kind of what Solomon is talking about. I've given all of this, I've built all of this, and what if those who receive it ruin it? What if they're not wise? What if they're actually fools when it comes to what I give them? And you could look at it in the context of Batman, and you're like, well, yeah, that's kind of fictional. But you could also see it in the context of, for instance, the prodigal son, right? The son goes to the dad, and he's like, hey, man, I want my inheritance now. I want to be able to spend it now. I want to live life. I want to go see the world. And dad's like, all right, here you go. Take the money. And he blows it. All the money or all of the the inheritance that the father had for his son, his son goes out and blows it. Perhaps you've even seen it if you've ever moved houses. When you go back and visit your old house and you're like, man, you see the, the new owners not take care of it as well as you did, right? kind of upsets you. It's upsets, it's upset, upsetting to me, but whatever. You see it in a variety of contexts. And the point is that when it comes to inheritance, not even the great King Solomon could guarantee his empire. In fact, when he died and his son took over, his son lost over 80% of the kingdom in addition to seeing it divided. And you can read about it in 1 Kings 12. The whole chapter is about him losing everything. All right, well, what about succession? In other words, man, there was a good leader. Hopefully another good leader comes up. But that is also something we cannot guarantee. We can't guarantee that someone who's coming up in the ranks is also going to be a good leader. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been reading about Stoic philosophers, and it's been really fascinating and interesting. And one of the the philosophers I read about, his name is Seneca. And Seneca mentored, you could even say he discipled, uh, who we know as the emperor that is Nero. And Nero took the throne at a very, very early age. He was about 16. And Seneca had been discipling him since, or mentoring him and teaching him since he was a kid. And he could begin to see some of these selfish motivations and even a little bit of violence in Nero. And there's even this statue that was built, I suppose, to kind of demonstrate their relationship. And on one hand, you have Seneca, who is an older man, and he's pleading with Nero. And you could see it in the statue. He's trying to teach him. And then you see Nero with his head covered, not wanting to listen, just really wanting to do his own thing. And we have this good teacher who is investing a significant amount of time, writing significant amount of work so that Nero would hopefully turn out to be a good leader. And after Nero's father dies and takes the throne, he has gone down in the pages of history as one of the most violent emperors in the history of Rome's empire. Persecuting, murdering, slaughtering thousands of Christians takes the credit for beheading the Apostle Paul. He murdered his brother-in-law. He murdered his mom just because he thought she might want him to marry someone he didn't want to marry. There's no guarantee 
that when we're gone, the inheritance that we have for our children, the, 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 the things that we have in order to, to see hopefully flourishment, there's no guarantee that they're going to take place. And that's what Solomon is realizing and is essentially asking, what's the point of why you work if you can't guarantee legacy or expansion? And so when you start to consider that, your, your heart rate might go up a little bit. And, and we kind of respond like Ron Swanson. If you have ever watched Parks and Rec, you know that Ron Swanson loves a couple of things, isolation, bacon, and, uh, and he, he loves, well, he hates the government, right? Oftentimes, he talks about how he has these dense libertarian beliefs, and he has this quite a bit of gold that he's accumulated. And his friend, Ben Wyatt, asks him, hey, have you left an inheritance for your children? And Ron Swanson tells him, no, I want my children to know what hard work is. And he says, if you don't do something legally, like put that in a will or in a fund, when you die, the government's going to take what you possess. And you see Ron Swanson flip out, jump over the desk, and then take whatever measures needed to go handle his legal issues. When we read about Ecclesiastes 2.18, and you realize, man, what's the point of work if it can't even, or I won't even be guaranteed legacy or inheritance or any of those things? What's the point of work? We start to panic. We panic like, Good old Ron Swanson. And Solomon even goes on to write that he gives up his heart to despair. Like it's causing him to despair. It's breaking his heart. It's growing with sorrow over all of his labor. Everything that he's built. Everything that he's accumulated. And in all of this, we need to remember that his labor is still operating under earthly wisdom. He still has not considered God at this point. God is not mentioned at this point. God is not a consideration. God is nowhere to be found in his life. He is not central. And so the first thing Solomon concludes is, when I die, I can't take everything that I've built with me. And if that's not enough, there's still another issue. And the issue is work itself. This is found in verses 22 to 23. Solomon writes, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. You know, if we just stop here and we consider chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 23. One, it's one thought. Two, it kind of looks like Solomon's spiraling, right? Because now it's not just, oh, I can't take anything with me when I die. Now he's considering the frustrations and futility of work itself and what, the, what work leaves us with. So many of you have jobs. Many of you are parents. Many of you are students. Tell me if some of these ring a bell. Work itself has its own frustrations, such as thorns and thistles. That is, simply the frustrations and devastations from work that we can't control. The curse that comes with work. You're trying to get ahead and someone keeps you down. 
you didn't get that promotion. You keep trying to catch up and you just keep getting more work. Solomon writes that his work is a vexation. That is, that word vexation, meaning that work is annoying, work is irritating, work keeps me down. And it's not because he's not a hard worker. Clearly, we saw last week how hard he works. So it's not necessarily a work ethic thing. It is just frustrations and futility that come with work. Some of you have told me about some of the frustrations you have. Another one uh, that, that comes with work are the demands from work, expectations and deadlines and pressures. And those demands lead to various kinds of effects. Solomon goes on to write that for all his days are full of sorrow. We are left with sorrow as a result of frustration with work. And when we are left with sorrow, what does that do? It affects us mentally. It affects us physically. It affects us emotionally. He goes on to write in verse 23, Even in the night, his heart does not rest. We can look at that in one of two ways. We can look at that in two ways, actually. In one sense, some of you have told me about how, for instance, you can't even sleep well at night because you're concerned that the phone is going to go off because work is going to call you about something that could wait until you actually get to the office, but you got that boss that keeps texting and calling and sending emails at 4 a.m., and so you're already worked up. Some of you even wake up in the middle of the night thinking that you're at work. Some of you have told me about some of those things. But in addition to that, it's not just the pressure that comes with work that, is, that keeps us up. Sometimes it is also the fact that work has become an idol. Sometimes it's not just me being anxious that I'm going to get a call from one of my employees. Sometimes it's just simple in the sense that we want more. And as you consider work, maybe, sure, you're considering legacy and succession or inheritance, but work has consumed you. Work has become your identity. Even the really, really good work that you do with the Jesus quotes that you drop throughout the day, work has consumed you. And outside of work, you struggle to find meaning and identity and worth and value. Those are some of the frustrations that just come with work. And you might ask, well, how long does this last? Because this just sounds miserable. Oh, Solomon tells us in verse 23, all his days. <laughs> all his days. Yet as haunting as all of this seems, I want you to remember that Solomon has been pursuing all of this meaning and has been arriving at all of these conclusions apart from God. With no godly wisdom to guide him, with no counsel to confront him, it's been a test in experiences, sure, but it has been one that has been self-centered, self-driven, and self-concerned. And so in all of that wisdom, he concludes that he can't take anything with him. And that work is irritating. Can some of you relate to that? Are you living in that right now? Are you 
arriving at the same conclusions in part because you are operating apart from God. You see, in the end, if we make work the centrality of our life, then we will be left empty. And that's what Solomon is discovering, that he's empty. If we end it there. But now we enter into verse 24. And at this point, just when we think that everything is utterly worthless, there's a change in in Solomon's perspective. There is a new realization in verses 24 to 26. As one author writes, this is an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. And so beginning in verse 24, Solomon writes, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. It sounds like a contradiction, right? He just said work is a misery, and now all of a sudden it's his jam, right? That's why this book is like the emo's guide to Jesus, right? Like on one sense, it's like work is horrible and it's miserable and I'm finding no worth in it. And he's like, I really love work. You're like, dude, enough of this. My heart's going to pop out of my chest, right? But again, as he just said that his work is a misery. Now it's his jam. What happened? Something happens in this uh, ending section. And we're going to look at three things. The first one is that God is mentioned. Finally and at last, God is mentioned. Meaning that God is present. And as he considers God, he realizes that the presence of God is what makes all of the difference. Let's look at verses 24 to 26 in brief. He writes, Uh, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy, concluding only to the one, only to give to the one who pleases God. At the end of verse 25, I believe. God is finally mentioned. God is presence. And the presence of God is what makes all of the difference. All of a sudden, he is starting to look at life with a completely different perspective, recognizing that now God is the giver of gifts. Up until this point, Solomon has been pursuing everything selfishly for his own selfish desires. And now he's realizing, man, I have been hoarding things rather than receiving these gifts from God to be enjoyed. And if that's nothing, we continue in this section. He goes on to say, here's verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom. Up until now, the word wisdom has been earthly wisdom, trying to go about life apart from God. Here in verse 26, the word wisdom is now divine wisdom. It's the wisdom given to us by God as he has revealed himself to us through his word. Everything has changed because now God is at the center of what he's doing. This passage, this whole thing, verse 24 through 26, is one of several of what we call enjoyment passages. Here, Solomon is recognizing 
that he's been doing, that what he's been doing has been trying to collect, seize, accumulate, consume. He's been trying to take everything for himself rather than receive gifts. In addition to that, he's realizing I'm living in a paradox. And he's trying to discern how to live in that paradox. In other words, yes, life is hard and our world has been cursed by sin, but it is also a world that God created. It is also a world that God visited in Jesus Christ. It is also a world that God is restoring. And it is also a world in which God gives us gifts to enjoy. And so as he's now like changing his thinking, as the perspective is beginning to change, Solomon goes on to tell us some of the gifts God gives for us to enjoy. And the first one is in verse 24, and that is work itself. It's the first gift that he recognizes. And this whole time, once more, Solomon has been trying to obtain everything for his own pleasure taking and accumulating and consuming. But now he sees the things that he's been given are to be received for enjoyment as a gift. If you find yourself dissatisfied and devastated with a lack of joy in your life, then perhaps, perhaps you have taken good things and have made them ultimate things instead of God-given things. Work is a gift from God. It's a pre-fall gift, not a post-fall curse. We looked at that in the stewardship series, right? In Genesis 2, God takes man and puts him in the garden to work it and keep it. And what was the point? The point was to see flourishing. Yes, it was to bring God glory, but it was also for our flourishing and enjoyment because the gifts we receive as a result of work are to be enjoyed and the gifts themselves point us back to the ultimate gift giver. In chapter 3, Solomon says it this way, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul to Timothy says it this way, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The things that we experience on this earth in this life, we are to enjoy them. They're never going to satisfy. They are temporary. They are limited. But the point is that they drive us back to Jesus as the ultimate gift giver. The second gift that Solomon is just kind of blown away by is in verse 26, and that is God's justice. So let's look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. So he gives us two perspectives, the one who pleases God and the sinner. He says, the one who pleases God has been given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. That is, that they delight in obeying God because they belong to God. That they actually enjoy the gifts from God, therefore they are grateful. And as a result, they're able to enjoy them. And because they're able to enjoy them, they trust God more and more. 
That's the one who pleases God. And then he contrasts the sinner. And what is their toil? Gathering and collecting. That is, they are dominated by accumulation. They're dominated by consumption. And all of it will be left behind. The sinner is lost in their sins. There is no reward, only loss. And as a result, Solomon is saying that God is the one who executes justice. One day, he will execute justice. And when he does, the people of God will rejoice. And so that brings me to a quick exhortation. As a result, and we long for that day. You are not judge. Some of you are lost in the sin of self-righteousness. Sure, you enjoy the gifts of God, but you find yourself constantly thinking, judging, pressing, focusing on those that you would call the sinners. When in reality... That's where you find yourself in because you're lost in your self-righteousness. So let me ask you, on this side, in this life, is grace something that you have really received or is it something that you're just hoarding? On this side, rather than proclaiming the excellencies, the beauty of God's gospel to those who don't know Him, on this side, have you really received grace or are you just hoarding grace? Some of you are lost in the sin of self-righteousness. You are not the judge. The third gift is wisdom also, verse 26. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. We based an entire series off of this. What, what is wisdom? It is the fear of God. It is searching the scriptures. It is seeking wise counsel. For what? So that we might walk in his ways. Not so that we would answer some sort of test and questionnaire, but so that we would be transformed by God as he has revealed himself to us. Solomon, ironically, writes in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So wisdom is this gift from God, godly wisdom, not just earthly wisdom, but godly wisdom. The fourth thing is found in verse 24, and this is eating and drinking and enjoying our toil. Yesterday, as we saw that, the, the movie Batman, you know, they give you all these trailers and commercials, and there's always that Coca-Cola commercial, right? And so there was this one Coca-Cola commercial where uh, I guess it, like, one of the kids walks into the house after coming home from school, and dad's on Zoom, and, and mom's like on her phone, and the sister is also on her laptop, and mom recognizes that the son, everybody's like kind of disconnected and he doesn't know what to do. And so she pulls him into the kitchen and they start cooking a meal together and they enjoy it. And then all of a sudden everybody's laptops are closed and the phones are put away and they're just enjoying this meal together. That's what Solomon is talking about. Enjoying that time with one another, enjoying the table with one another. 
right? We see Jesus even experience this with the sinners and the tax collectors where he has lunch with them and he is present and he is faithful and he enjoys the moment. And for Solomon, rather than having this moment as entitlement, I deserve this, this is about me, he realizes that when we receive it as a gift, only then can we experience genuine joy and thanksgiving. David Gibson writes this about this verse. Ordinarily, or this passage, ordinarily we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose, and very likely to make a reputation for ourselves and achieve success. What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous. When you go hang out at lunch or you bring someone over and you're at the table, what if that's what it's meant to be? What if, what if work drives us to just joy itself in that moment? And we are so blind by our ambition, our entitlement, our consumption, that we can't enjoy it. Thus, unable to experience joy itself. And finally, the last gift, is the same verse, 26, it's joy. For the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. The one who pleases God is, is given joy. God is the one who gives gifts, and he is the one who gives the ability to enjoy those gifts. Listen, work is and will be both sorrowful and sweet, frustrating and fruitful all at the same time. But the beauty is that we can be grateful and thankful to God for the gifts and moments of thanksgiving we receive. When we're at that table laughing and goofing around, it's a slice. It's a slice of the life to come. That is why Paul tells the Corinthians, that is why he is able to tell the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Many of you are going to go to lunch afterwards. You're going to laugh. Do whatever it is you do at lunch, right? What if that's just a slice of what is to come? Godly wisdom is able to help us turn away from entitlement and instead receive the gifts of God for us. Work, justice, wisdom, the table, and joy. And so as we wrap it up, here's the, here's the real beauty. And the real beauty is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though our work is frustrating, yet fruitful, sorrowful, yet sweet, it's not always going to be that way. Once again, Ecclesiastes provides us with a hard word, with an honest word, but praise be to God that it is not the last word. 
You see, Jesus entered into the frustrating futility of work, experienced the gifts of God with others, and was focused on the Father's work. And what is the greatest redemptive work of history, he suffered in our place and for our sin through his crucifixion and death, was buried and three days later rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might have new life and transformation. As a result, Christian, your mind has been renewed. Your conscience has been cleansed. And though that doesn't mean that we're going to be happy all the time, there are dark and frustrating moments ahead, but you are not alone. And it doesn't mean that things like depression will not exist, but Jesus can sympathize with you and brings others around you. And if that's not enough, Jesus is not done working. The work that he's begun in you, he will see it to completion. Whereas Solomon saw death as the final destination, the work of Jesus is the only thing that puts death to death and makes death nothing but a vehicle into glory. Therefore, today... Enjoy the gifts of God for you. And may they point you back to the beauty and work of Jesus. All of these gifts, everything that we've covered and more, all of these gifts are not only found in Jesus, not only are they embodied by Jesus, but they are also given to you from Jesus. Enjoy them. And so as we close, Christian, let me ask you, where is your heart when it comes to work right now? Whatever your work is. Is it a heart that is operating out of earthly wisdom or is it one that is operating out of godly wisdom? Is it a heart that lacks joy as a result of entitlement and self-righteousness or is it a heart that is pursuing joy as it receives God's gifts. Where is your heart right now? The beauty of moments like this is that Jesus invites him to himself through confession and repentance as a pouring out of his grace. So let me invite you to repent if you have been operating apart from God. Those of you that, if you don't know Jesus, it's the same question. Where is your heart right now when it comes to work, whatever it is that you do? You see, apart from God, you will be able to enjoy gifts from Him, but they are limited. In that, this is the best that life can offer. This is the closest to heaven that you will ever be. However, in Christ, there is not only redemption, but transformation. Not simply bumper sticker wisdom, but divine wisdom as revealed to you by God through faith and repentance. So church, once more, if our source of joy is earthly wisdom, then our work will be disappointed. If not now, then later. But if our source of joy is godly wisdom, then our work can be a delight. Let's pray.
Father, we confess to you that we are tempted to find ourselves in the, the same places and the same perspectives that Solomon found himself in. Last week, we talked about a variety of experiences that he tested, and today we looked at what he was reflecting on concerning all of his work, only to realize that it was vanity and striving after wind. Lord, we confess that, that oftentimes when it comes to not just our work, but the way in which we live, we are operating from earthly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. God, we confess that not just in work, but the way in which we live, our heart lacks joy because we have a sense of entitlement and self-righteousness rather than one that is pursuing, trying to pursue and cultivate joy as we receive and enjoy your gifts. Father, would you forgive us of our self-righteousness, of our entitlement? Would you forgive us for indulging in things apart from you, thinking we know better? Father, we confess our sins before you. The sins that no one knows about and the sins that everyone knows. May you humble us to know that, oh, that our sins have become a burden to us. And if they haven't, it is because we have grown used to them. So would you humble us this morning? And Father, would you forgive us? Ecclesiastes sometimes provides a, a stark view of reality. Holy Spirit, would you be our light in the darkest of days? Would you supply us with the strength needed to run to you? To worship you? Would you supply us with the humility to receive the gifts, gifts from you and enjoy them? Lord, to the tired, to the weary, to the indifferent, to the apathetic, to the hurting, to the self-righteous, even to the joyful, Lord, would you pour out your grace? Would you pour out your grace to us this morning so that we would walk in your light for your glory and our good. May the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.